Well, good morning again, Grace Church, Monterey Bay. It's super great to be in our great God and Savior's house. And if you would, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. It's difficult for me to say Matthew. I'm so used to saying John. But this is a really key passage for us in the life of the church and as believers. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." In 1933, in the depths of the Great Depression, and in the heyday of theological liberalism, J. Gresham Macon tried to answer the pressing question, which was this, what is the church's responsibility in this new age? His answer was spot on back then, and in its no less true for us, three quarters of a century later. And he said this, the responsibility of the church in the new age is the same as its responsibility in every age. It is to testify that this world is lost in sin, that the span of human life, no, all the length of human history, is an island in the awful depths of eternity and that there is a mysterious, holy, living God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all, that he has revealed himself to us in his word and offered us communion with himself through Jesus Christ the Lord, that there is no other salvation for individuals or for nations save this, but that this salvation is full and free." and that whoever possesses it has for himself and for all others to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it a treasure compared with which all the kingdoms of the earth know all the wonders of the starry heavens are as the dust of the street. An unpopular message it is, an impractical message we are told, but it is the message of the Christian church Neglect it, and you will have destruction. Heed it, and you will have life. Close quote. It is not the church's responsibility to right every wrong or to meet every need, though we have biblical motivation to do those things. It is our responsibility, our unique mission, our plain priority that this unpopular, impractical gospel message gets told.
told that the neighbors and the nations may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that they too may have life in his name. Amen? That is the mission of the church. And it's never changed from the time that Jesus told his disciples what that mission was. Some of you guys know that at the end of this, towards the end of the service, we're going to be having two uh, baptisms. We're going to be baptizing Jordan, Thomas, and Seth Kyler, and and really want to just kind of do a little sermon, do a little message on where we see that in Scripture, why we baptize individuals, and I see it there very clearly in Matthew chapter. 28. And so that's what I want to do. I want to look very briefly before we get to the baptisms at Matthew chapter 28 and just look at what Christ commissioned his disciples to do and to really see if we as a church are continuing to line up with that mission. So there in Matthew chapter 28, I know we're looking at the last five verses of Matthew's gospel, but just to set a little bit of context as to where this is uttered and to whom is speaking and what the disciples will hear. Now, Christ at this point obviously has already died. He has already been buried and he has already rose from the grave. There you see there in Matthew chapter 28. The angel appears to the women and tells them to go and to tell the disciples that he is risen. Jesus met the women and said, greetings. Look there at chapter 9, or excuse me, verse 9 of chapter 28. He says, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of Jesus' feet and worshiped him. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The last recorded appearance of Jesus in Jerusalem was eight days after the resurrection, where Thomas is in the room and he sees the resurrected Lord for the very first time after he doubts. From Jerusalem, the disciples go to Galilee, which Jesus told them to do, and that time would take at least a week for them to travel. During that time, they fished where Jesus appeared to them and gave them a catch that was too big for them to pull in. Then he has breakfast with the disciples on the shore, and that's where Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him, and then he commissions Peter to feed my sheep. That event would occur 15 days after the resurrection. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended from the Mount of olives in the presence of the disciples. And they would have taken another week to travel from Galilee, where he meets them, all the way back to Jerusalem again. Now, if you remember, Jesus was still on earth after his resurrection for 40 days before he will ascend. So the time frame here, Jesus would have given this commission in Matthew chapter 8, verses 17 to 20, sometime between 20 or 40 days of his resurrection. Now, Jesus knows that his ascension is at hand very soon. But there they are on the mountainside of Galilee, 
Jesus is there with his disciples, knowing that he is going to leave them. The disciples are there, present, with all their fears, all of their weaknesses, all of their confusion, all of their doubts, all of their uncertainty, their hesitations of what's going on. And if you look there in verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, we're not told who doubted, and we're not told what they doubted. There's a mixed group of those who worship him and are excited by his presence, and there's some that doubt. I think all of them for sure are still fearful of all that's going on. We don't really see much of a boldness from all of the disciples until after Pentecost when they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They are fretful, scared, worried, and fearful, knowing all that Christ has told them of what's going to happen and the fact that he is going to be leaving very, very soon. And so if you look there in verse 18, Jesus comes to them and he speaks to them. He comes to them to alleviate any doubts that they may have, to arrest their attention off of their circumstances, and to get their focus and attention onto himself. What is it that Christ is going to choose to speak to grab their attention? What will he say to reassure them? to alleviate all doubt? What will he say to strengthen their current weak knees? What will diminish or destroy their current fear of men? What will he say to cause their hearts to burn with passion for the mission that he is going to tell them very shortly? What will he say for them to remember always and to maintain this mission, this missionary work that he's about to command them? These powerless disciples need something from their Lord to empower them. And Christ is omniscient, meaning he knows everything that is going on past present, and future. So Christ is about to speak with authority to these disciples, also knowing that every disciple and follower after him will continue to go to these words over and over and over again to gain encouragement in their current context. He knows that. So he needs to choose the perfect words that will apply to the disciples before him and any disciple that comes after. And what does he tell them? He tells them of his complete and utter sovereign authority. If you look there at chapter 28, verse 18, he says real simply, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This establishing of his sovereign authority, it needs to be said. 
It needs to be stated and fully understood before he's going to commission them to do something. Otherwise, this command to go and make disciples would seem hopelessly impossible for these followers. The disciples had witnessed astonishing unbelief, hatred, and rejection from both Jew and Gentile in the life and ministry of Christ. And so if he leaves, they know what they're going to get from the people. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out his disciples for the very first time. Well, he's still on earth in Matthew chapter 10. If you remember, he says, go to the towns and villages, receive no pay. And as you go to the towns and villages, tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. And he says there in Matthew chapter 10, he says, but behold, as you go, I'm sending you in the midst of, of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake. That was a long time ago from these words that Jesus utters in Matthew chapter 28. And a lot has transpired from that time where he first sends them out. All high-ranking groups hate Christ right now. Scribes, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, kings, officials, guards, Pilate, Rome, who rules the world. They know the name of Jesus Christ. And these are some pretty intimidating people for a bunch of fishermen, tax collectors. And these high-ranking officials, they have the ability to kill. They have the ability to crucify if they're crossed in any way especially if anybody comes to them in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus is about to tell them to go and make disciples of those people. Christ has to tell them that I have all authority before he commissions them to do the impossible. I know we're facing an even similar situation here in the church today, in our own time, in our own generation. With all that we're facing today with government today, I believe it is an issue of authority. I think it all comes down to an issue of authority. Mayors, judges, courts, presidents, all government authorities who rule, they don't really like it when we come along and say, uh, no, um, that, that's a male. 
No, that's a female. Uh, no, that, that's actually a live baby in the mother's womb. No, you, you can't make me do that. I have a higher authority than you. His name is Jesus. He is Lord of all, and he has my complete allegiance. And we're to turn and say, he has my allegiance, and he should have your allegiance. I don't mean to just oversimplify the issue. I know there's some tough things that we need to work out as believers, and I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for the clarity that's being sought in the church. I don't think the church has scrutinized these types of passages like Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Acts chapter 4, when Daniel prays when he's told not to. We have been looking at those passages probably more in the history of the church than ever in the last year and a half. And I'm grateful for it. It's so that the true church knows that our sovereign Lord has personally said to the government or any high-ranking official who's there for our good, he is saying to them, you can go this far in your rule to my people, and beyond that, they will not obey you. Make sense? And I really do believe that this is a gift from our Lord as a test, to really test us to see where our true allegiance is. Amen? Now, if you look there in verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the question comes, well, when we're thinking of Christ, why was something given to him, right? Now, I don't want to go too much on the issue because we're about to be entering into the Holy of Holies of Philippians chapter 2 pretty soon, and we're all like really excited to see Christ in the middle of Philippians chapter 2 and seeing the God-man and him highly exalted and him being humbled. And so I don't want to belabor that point and steal a little bit of, of Dom's thunder there. But it's really hard for me to just go over it. I feel like I'm not faithful to the passage if I don't just explain that really briefly. The question is, why was this authority given to Christ? Okay? Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27, we've heard these before. Christ says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. John 17, 2, Christ says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. But didn't the Son of God have all authority? When was he ever given authority is the dilemma there right? John chapter 1. He existed with the Father as the agent of creation before anything was existed. 
He's the pre-existent one who had the authority to call things into being. So he didn't become authoritative in his incarnation. Here's the distinction. Before the incarnation, God the Son existed with all the authority. But the God-man had not yet come and died and rose from the grave, triumphing over sin and Satan. And because of that glorious work, as the God-man, he was exalted to the right hand of God and was installed as Lord of all. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, so on and so on. Does that make sense? I'll leave the rest for Dom to walk us through those amazing passages, and I'm personally excited for them. But let's ask the question for us here. What is this authority that Jesus is talking about? And what or how extensive is that authority that he refers to in verse 18? What Jesus has already been showing his disciples or anybody near in the gospels that he has had sovereign authority over many things. Authority over disease. Authority over sickness. Over demons. Over sin. Over death. He has the authority to forgive sin. He displayed authority to execute judgment. He had the authority to lay his life down and to take it up again. Those are just in the gospels that he displayed. We're not even getting to the epistles where all the New Testament writers show us more of the glory of God in Christ and all he has authority over. This is just what we see in the gospels and in the Old Testament. I think one of the clearest indications of Christ's authority is actually in Daniel chapter 7. The prophet Daniel saw sovereign authority being given to Christ. In his vision, he beheld one like a son of man coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before the ancient of days, the Father. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And here he is. The Son of Man has been given all of that authority. And all of that authority rests right now in this risen Savior who speaks to his friends. That's the type of authority that Jesus wants his disciples to know and to be comforted by. Jesus is saying, by this authority, all the nations to which I'm sending you, I own them. I own them all. 
They're all mine by divine right as their creator and Lord of all. And what I'm calling you to do is to go to the nations and to turn their allegiance to me. That is what Jesus is saying to his disciples, to give them the most comfort, confidence, and motivation before they go and do the impossible. What does he command them to do? Briefly, in verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The main verb there is make disciples. It's the central command of verses 19 and 20. It's make disciples. Go, and as you do, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them. But the overall central command he's calling them to is to go and to make disciples. Make true followers of me. And it's interesting, the the go here is really translated going. It's not go, it's going or having gone. It's more of an assumption than a command. It's assumed that the disciples will be going and making disciples. Now, I know you probably hear, like most, you hear the term go, and you think automatically, well, this is for missionaries, right? It's for those that go outside of us and go to those unreached people groups who don't know the gospel, who don't have the Bible, and where the gospel isn't known or prevalent. And that's true. It's for missionaries. They live off of this verse, and they should. There are those that go, that are sent by the church to go and bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. But then there's also those that are holding the rope to those that go to those nations in support of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. That this is all there. So, of course, it entails missions or missionaries, but it's also right here in our own community. It's also right here in our very own context. Whatever age you are, whatever your context, whatever your occupation, whatever your personality is, whether you're bold, whether you're shy, whether you work downtown, whether you work from home, whether you're an introvert, whether you're an extrovert, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a businessman, we are commanded to be making disciples. It's assumed that everyone who has become a disciple, are themselves to be disciple-makers. All who truly follow Christ become, at the moment of salvation, fishers of men. Not just the twelve, not just the eleven. And just keeping with the fishing analogy, 
Not only are we to cast our net out there to bring the lost in, we're actually to cast our nets and to bring them in and baptize them and to continue to teach them until the day that Christ comes back or we go home with him. There's no exceptions to this command. Man or woman, young or old, here's the challenge for us, church. If your life, if my life, our schedules doesn't allow us in any way to be fulfilling this command in some way or fashion, there must be an immediate change of our priorities. Heaven is our home. We will go nowhere else. But there are millions and millions of people, as of right now, where hell is going to be their home. So again, as we draw men and women in with the saving truth of Jesus Christ, and if any, hopefully, prayerfully, profess Christ and their allegiance to the Savior, they repent and turn from their sins, what is the first thing that needs to happen? They are to be baptized. They are to be baptized. What does baptized mean? Really simply, it means immersed. To be immersed. Here's a very simple, concise definition. Listen to it. Baptism is an outward act of identification. I love that word. Baptism is an act, an outward act of identification with Christ through faith. A visible, public testimony that one now belongs to Jesus Christ. Amen. Baptism also illustrates in a very dramatic way the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As true believers, it illustrates our death to sin and our new life in Christ. Romans chapter 6 Verse 4, Paul says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. As the sinner confesses Christ, he dies to sin and he is raised to a new life that he has never had before. And being submerged, immersed in the water, represents death to the sin that once ruled and reigned over that individual. And emerging from the water represents the cleansed, holy life that now follows with salvation. In just a little while, you're going to see both Jordan and Seth rise from the water. And that represents the holy, new, sanctified life that they have been given and now can live in the name of Jesus Christ. It is glorious, and heaven throws a party every single time these events happen, and so should we.
Dear friends, I don't know every single one of you. Maybe you're here for the very first time. Maybe you've been here for a few days and you're not convinced that you've been born again, that you do not have a new life in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that our church body wants more than for you to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. To come to the one and only true God who has the authority, the only authority to forgive your sins before a holy God that really deserves death. And for you to believe that Jesus Christ came for the purpose of dying in the place of sinners like you and like me. That he rose from the grave by the power of God, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father as Lord of all. If you would, friend, repent, turn away from your sin and unrighteousness, and give Jesus Christ your complete and full allegiance. Quick application, church. We as a body cannot forget nor neglect our primary mission. There's a danger for us to forget it. That mission that we're talking about, the Great Commission, that mission that flows out of our loving fellowship, that mission that flows out of our spiritual growth and our praise is that of being God's faithful and obedient instruments in his divine plan to redeem the world. I want to close with a story that I heard a number of years ago, and I always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to read it one time to us as a church, and I've just been waiting to read this story. It's a really helpful story and illustration to show us that there's a real danger that we can forget and neglect our primary mission. It's a little long, but listen to it closely, okay? On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for their safety, they went out day and night, tirelessly rescuing the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station, so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with that life-saving station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New, bo new boats were bought and crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in the large building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. 
The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where club initiations were often held. At about this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. And the new club, the beautiful new club, was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership, and most of the members wanted to stop the life-saving activity because they were a hindrance and unpleasant to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out they were still a life-saving station after all. They were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs among the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent, but most of the people drown. See the connections there? You see the danger that we may face as a church if we get off of our primary mission and we get way too focused on good things, of course, but not the primary mission. Where is your heart at this morning? Are you currently making disciples of those around you? Are you using your time, energy, and resources to give to missionary work. People are lost. And it's our desire to continue to be a beacon of hope to save souls. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your continued warnings, for your continued encouragement and just the clarity that you give to us in your inspired word. Help us as believers to really know and feel with emotion the authority that you possess, and that that authority is what should comfort us. We are fearful We seem small and insignificant in the world at large. But the promise comes to us even now, and we thank you for it, that you are with us always. We go to the nations as true ambassadors of our King. We will be persecuted. We will be maligned. We will not be liked. If they reject us, they reject you. I do pray for a continued boldness. I do pray that there would be a right setting of our priorities, both individually in our families and yet corporately as a body, 
who seeks to magnify our Lord Jesus Christ, who wants to minister to the church for your own glory, to continue to baptize those who have been called to your name and have passed from death to life, and that you would be glorified as we multiply more of your disciples. But just like the disciples there on that mountainside of Galilee, we need your encouragement. We do look and see how impossible it seems to go before such people and to proclaim your authority, your kingship, your sovereign rule. Again, Lord, as we are in your word, listening to sermons, praying, sharpening one another, that you would sanctify us by your truth, that we would excel in good works so that you would be glorified in all things. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.